0: Welcome to the News & Views podcast by The Fintech Times. Established in 2016, The Fintech Times is a global multimedia news outlet centred around the world's first leading fintech newspaper. We report on the latest and brightest ideas from the fintech world. Follow the conversation using hashtag TFC News and, Views and follow us at The Fintech Times. Hi, I'm Polly and I'm a journalist at The Fintech Times.
1: Hi, I'm Francis Bignall and I'm a junior journalist at The Fintech Times.
2: Hi, my name is Tyler Pave and I'm a junior journalist here at the FinTech Times.
0: Hello, hello, hello. How are you guys doing today?
1: Hello, Polly. Hello, Tyler. Yeah, I'm not too bad. i um, finally got my mic working again, so it's looking like it's going to be a good week.
0: Fantastic. And Tyler, how are you?
2: Oh, it's, uh, it's another fantastic week, Polly. I've um, come from breakfast with Starling Bank this morning. which went very well and it was really good to see they were up to um but yeah it's uh, it's good how are you Polly?
0: I am really good thank you I think it's been a like a huge week for events and things obviously I know Tyler you're here there and everywhere this week um I was at Innovative Finance Global Summit with the rest of the team on Monday and Tuesday so it's all it's all kicking off this week so it's a perfect time you know to talk about fintech as we do <laughs> so um Tyler what are you going to be talking about this week?
2: Well, we are going to be taking a look at a very recent story that landed on my desk, where the basically what's happened is the Central Bank of Italy has banned the German bank N twenty six. It's a it's a neo bank. Um, they've banned them from interacting with their customers. Uh, exactly why that is, we'll we'll explain a little bit later. But yeah, that's uh, that's the story we're going to be doing today. What about you, Francis?
1: uh this week i'm going to be discussing competition and in challenger banks and if they are the new competition or not it's going to be our focus here at the fintech times this month and i had a very interesting viewpoint that i wanted to discuss with you guys
0: awesome well we'll talk about that a little bit later on and then this week i uh, am bringing to the table a story about gen z and their shopping habits and how that's going to shape fintech of tomorrow um, I'm gonna ask for volunteers this week. Does anyone have a particular urge to go first with their story?
2: I'm Francis.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say I don't mind going first this week. We'll do
0: it. Francis, thank you for volunteering. Let's go. Challenger banks, hit it.
1: So co-opetition is a newly created buzzword that's been flying around in the fintech industry for about over the last a couple of years now. And it's essentially a portmanteau of cooperation and competition. Uh, where challenges team up with incumbent financial institutions to create new products, product, services, and solutions for the industry. Many believe that this is a new way forward for the sector, looking to continue its innovation with teamwork being essential in order to create an ecosystem that better serves its co- uh, consumers. So we've done a couple of articles looking at co-opetition and if it is the new competition, but the article that I wanted to discuss heard from SRM Europe, Bottom Line, Sybil, and CMFG Ventures, and what we really understood from this article and the viewpoints of those that took part was that fintechs innovating with the cloud is massively helping incumbents and the sort of competition and cooperation that's happening between these new uh, innovative fintechs is essential for incumbent survival. However, one of the more interesting viewpoints came from David Royal, the Chief Operating Officer and MD Financial Services Consulting, from SRM Europe, who seemed to suggest that competition was more like plagiarism in the incumbents. And he really sort of wasn't in favor of it. He didn't like the idea of it and went on to suggest that it's almost absurd that the new challenger banks are going to be cooperating in nice competition with the existing entities in the industry, as if to say, oh, that's okay, you can have this customer, I'll have the next. He was suggesting that that is never going to happen and that it is very much a case of survival of the fittest almost. And he goes on to discuss how the market is currently too crowded for fintechs to flourish as there's been various startups across the last two years, since especially since the onset of the pandemic, who have tried to really capitalize on this digital transformation, shall we say. And that ultimately it really is too difficult for anyone in the industry, even the incumbents now to really secure customers, which is ultimately what every company wants to do. So what I wanted to discuss with you guys really was, is to discuss this viewpoint is competition, essentially plagiarism are the big banks who use, I don't know, like a FinTech's new system. Are they just plagiarizing the FinTech? Is it, is competition something that we need to see? Or, yeah, I really wanted to gauge your guys' viewpoints. Uh, Tyler, I'll go to you first.
2: Well, I think this was a really, really interesting viewpoint put forward by David. I think he put through another point that I I was actually incorporated into one of the articles I wrote for Challenger Banks yesterday. I, I do understand where he's coming from with his view on partnerships. I, I personally believe that collaboration is really beneficial to the fintech industry and i don't really agree with his view that it's plagiarism uh i think that there's integrity in each and everybody's services and i think that obviously there are choices to be made when looking for for somebody to collaborate with but i think it's i think it was a very interesting viewpoint that he's put forward and i think um, I don't I don't think I would agree with it at all now. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that
1: because I really think his last point, sort of saying that the market is too crowded for fintechs to flourish, really contradicts his whole thing of like cooperation shouldn't happen. Because if the market is too crowded, then surely that's the way that they're gonna have be successful, right? Because they work with each other, they partner with each other, they have mergers and acquisitions, and then that is the way that they're able to
2: survive in a very demanding and crowded market so i think it is yeah i can see why you disagree with it i think in financial services the last thing you you want to see is like a monopoly right so i i I think that the more the merrier in terms of in terms of people like actively in the market because you when there's more competition you're going to innovate at higher speeds and you're, you're going to be more agile with what you're doing and what you're offering and who you're speaking to so, I, I, yeah, I, I think I think he made a very good point. I don't think parts of his point are invalid, but I think it's maybe partially maybe misdirected.
1: It's interesting you say that because I think from a consumer point of view, that is definitely the case, is you don't want a monopoly because you want to have options. But I think from a business point of view, more often than not you'd want to have the majority share of customers you want as many people as possible to come to you i guess he's looking at it from a a business standpoint that by cooperating or having this competition not necessarily cooperating but like this sort of healthy competition where it's sort of like oh yeah we'll help you You scratch my back i scratch yours type of thing i guess in that sense like you're really not going to get a vast share of consumers and to be successful any uh company that wants to be successful needs to have a large share of consumers and I guess if that's at stake why would you cooperate or co com- op I don't know
2: competition why would that happen if your customers are at risk yeah I see like the angle that you're throwing across there I think that like I don't really see it as a, a valid reason for not cooperating with somebody because there's so many people in the market i'm so sorry i'm taking up all of the words here uh polly what's your view
0: thank you i have some opinions too <laughs> no i was just i agree with everything you guys have said already and i think the key thing that i have sort of noticed when we talk about co- this idea of co-opetition is the fact that it's called co-opetition. it's not cooperation for a reason and I think we've you've you've stuck those two words together for a good reason. And I think my understanding of the whole situation is it's not necessarily about sharing the customers. It's not like, well, I'll have all those over there and then you can have all those over there and then you that company can take the rest, blah blah. It's not necessarily about that. I think it's more sharing the ideas. So we wanna have a really sort of wide-ranging, wide-covering of financial services industry. You know, we want consumers to be able to get whatever they want from their financial services business. And while one company, I'm sure, would love to be able to offer every single thing to their consumer, that is just not possible and that is kind of why fintech was created in the first place. You know, obviously we had the the big banking crash because banks were just where you went for financial services. You just went to your bank. What did you need? A loan? You go to your bank. Credit card, bank, anything. You just go straight to your bank. And that was kind of where the problem came from. Like, Tyler, you're talking about a monopoly. So that's literally why fintech exists, because one company or one, you know, the banks can't do it all. And that sort of trickled down into this idea, in my opinion, at least, of co It's all about the fact that individual companies can't offer everything you need in financial services. It's just, it's not impossible, I guess, but it's just, it'd be very difficult to do it all well. So that's where we're having these fintechs come in who are doing one thing really, really well, getting the consumers for that thing, but then partnering with other fintechs other financial services providers etc in order to offer other stuff which is where this idea of competition becomes in it's not about leveling the playing field it's not about getting rid of competition entirely because that's the whole point of fintech to make a very competitive financial services industry it's simply about looking at the consumers and going right well i'm going to offer this service you guys offer a different service and that way we're covering everything that we need to
1: yeah I think there's the thing is is I want to keep discussing this but I know that we've sort of got a limited time so we will move on to the next article but I think you definitely raised a lot of interesting viewpoints there and this idea that it isn't what is it is it plagiarism is like one company sort of just absorbing another to steal the technology and yeah it's it's definitely something to keep an eye on
0: I think plagiarism is a super interesting word to use because if we're going to talk about plagiarism, I think then you kind of need to look at, you know, for example, when a, a challenger bank, let's say, I don't know, John's Bank has ha, brings out this brand new feature. And then you kind of know just a couple of months down the line, the incumbent bank has brought out the same feature as John's Bank. There's very little you can do now from a challenger bank that an incumbent bank hasn't already kind of done as well afterwards so like is that not the plagiarism but i think plagiarism is also quite a serious word to be throwing around and whether it fits in this situation i don't know but if you're partnering then is it plagiarism or is it just working together i don't know
1: uh, yeah i think it might be sort of like a forced partnership though that's my sort of view is that it's if possible the fintech would stand on its own two feet but because of the situation it has to partner in order to be successful but i guess that is in its sort of rawest form is that you need to partner with someone in order to be successful, but it doesn't mean that you want them necessarily to do well. It's just the way it is.
0: I don't think you necessarily have to partner with people to be successful. I just think it's it's just better. You know, at the end of the day, people wouldn't be doing it unless they were benefiting from it and unless the consumers were benefiting from it. And I think that's something that At least I've talked about to a lot of people in the industry that it is the consumers that are getting the benefits. So I don't think it's like a prerequisite of being a fintech that suddenly you have to partner with other people to get your tech. I just think it's kind of, it works out easier for you and for your product or your service or whatever it is that you're developing. Why build something when someone else is already doing it and you can just leverage what they're doing? Why build something from scratch when you can just use someone else's I, that's my
1: opinion, anyway. I don't know. Yeah, like I said, I would love to keep talking about it, but we do have a time limit. So, Tyler, as we are
2: on the topic of challenger banks, why don't we go over to you? Well, thank you, Francis. I, I really enjoyed our, our discussion. So today, what we're going to be discussing is the fact that the Bank of Italy uh, have banned the German neobank N26 uh, from undertaking any operations with uh, any of its customers uh in its italian branch so this uh this came into effect as of um, march 2022 so the, the just the end of last month and basically what's happened is that the bank of italy have done a little bit of research into n26 um and there's actually been quite a lot going on with this new bank at this point, between the 25th of October and the 17th of December, 2021, just towards the autumn of last year, um, the Federal Financial uh, Supervisory Authority uh, handed N26 a fine for 4.25 million euros because during 2019 and 2020, which actually was sort of a wider date from what they'd initially looked at, they had found like ill ill practices of stopping anti money laundering, and it the, the evidence showed they'd actually prevented to stop around fifty suspicious uh, transactions. So I think that this move by the Bank of Italy, like I, it's not an unfounded move. They haven't just been like, oh, we're going to ban you, and you know you're banished from from Italy or whatever. I, it's not it's not an unconscious move, and I think that a central bank has like. Almost like a moral authority to, uh, to sort of influence where their customers could be exposed to harm, and of course this is something that we've seen n twenty six. You know their their AML practices, anti money laundering practices, just aren't up to scratch. So we can see why that that would be the case. I mean, if we look at some of some of the wider statistics with with like financial institutions receiving fines for this issue. We see that, well, first of all, that each year, according to the UN, they think about, uh, you know, there's recorded and unrecorded cases, but they think roughly about $2 trillion each year is due to uh, anti-money, uh, anti-money laundering poor practices. In 2020, a total of 28 financial institutions, which would have included N26 at the time, received fines of about £2.6 billion. Uh, what was really interesting is around the same time that n26 sort of fell on their face nat west bank actually received a massive massive fine uh because it failed to prevent around 400 million in transactions in in dodgy transactions and it it was landed with a fine of 265 million pounds now that obviously for us is quite a lot of money um but for natwest is it's still quite a considerable uh, fine to have to pay off. I think what my my question to you is, I open it out to the floor, is do you think that we should see more of this sort of action by central banks where they say, okay, well, this this bank, although they are operational, although they're not directly engaging in any illegal practices, do you, do you think that this sort of like heavy-handed sort of like overarching behavior by central banks is warranted do you think that it's going to protect consumers in the long term and and yeah well, what are your thoughts for anti-money laundering before i hand you it, before i hand it over i just want to put it across to n26 that they have found the error of their ways and they are going to be like okay we're gonna you know work on how we can improve our procedures so i think that's also worth mentioning uh but yeah i mean i'm really interested to hear what your thoughts are on this story Let's hand over to Francis. Cheers, uh, Tyler. Yeah, so I think it is
1: justified in in short for central banks to get involved like this, because at the end of the day, they, they're protecting consumers. And if, if a lot of consumers are putting their money and faith in a challenger bank, and then that challenger bank is also conduct or isn't protecting itself from money laundering and isn't sort of, it's starting to give itself a very questionable name. I think that brings in a lot of sort of concerns for just your standard consumer to know that there are dodgy dealings behind the something that you're putting all your faith in. I thought it was very interesting that after the fine, which I believe was around 4 million, it was interesting that after the fine of 4.25 million euros was paid by N26, which I think in the in fairness is more like a slap on the wrist for a for a company when compared to NatWest's um fine for example but the fact that they didn't adjust to these they didn't after having paid the fine they sort of said okay well you know we're not going to do anything and then the next step that was taken was to ban them from undertaking operations with new cons- uh, with new customers i think it really is a case of There's that old adage that says that any press is good press, but a country sort of shutting out your company or a central bank shutting out your company can't be a good thing and it could seriously damage it back in your sort of uh, own countries as well because the press people are going to see, they're going to see that the company that I was thinking about joining is now dealing or hasn't dealt with money laundering very well. And sort of, I know you said in fairness to N26, they sort of responded to it. But all I could think about was that episode of South Park where B P had another oil spill and they just go, We're sorry and you just hear we're sorry over and over again. It's just like they don't really care. They're sort of just gonna continue to do it anyway. I mean I mean that is what has happened. They paid the fine and nothing they just didn't adjust anything. So it's taken them to be banned, to have this whole new level of sort of um of regulation, sort of it's sort of a bigger thing than just a slap on the wrist for them to actually say, okay, this is what we're going to deal with it now. Well, this is how we're going to deal with it. I should say.
2: Yeah. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. You've raised some really good questions and points there in that I can see why they've done it. And I think you can see too, why had, you know, they want to protect their customers, but you know, if you look at it at a at a proportional level, NatWest have been far Greater aggregators of this than us uh, let's be honest, a, a German neobank. but are, are you going to ban NetWest? Are you are you going to ban them from their from your country? Because what they've been punished more severely, and arguably they've they've let more transactions slip through. Is it a case that they haven't been banned or maybe haven't been penalized as harshly because they had the standing within the industry to? have a more vigorous response to it i mean i'm i'm not sure i mean that's sort of diving into another into another realm but i i definitely i don't know because when you look at when you look at it it's like i'm not sure if it makes sense and it at what level at what point of of ill doing do you ban somebody you know yeah i've i've sort of like contradicted myself quite a lot here but i'd love to hear, hear what you'd say polly
0: It's interesting that point you raised, Tyler, about like, you know, obviously like NatWest and at, at what point do you get banned? And I wonder if it has anything to do with the fact that just in general, there's less trust in challenger banks than there is in, you know, the incumbent traditional institutions. Whether that trust is, you know, warranted is another conversation entirely. But I think if you just look through the lens of just the financial industry in general. There's so much more trust in these traditional financial institutions. Like, you know, in in the UK, it's all the big the big four, or is it the big five? I can't remember. Um, but everyone trusts them more because, oh, well, they're banks. They're really old. They've been going for such a long time. Oh, my money is safe with them. Again, whether that's the case is another conversation entirely. But so when it comes to the N26 situation, you wonder if maybe that's why they have been penalised in the way that they have because there's just less trust in the newer banks because from you know a consumer perspective and maybe I guess does this show that there's less trust from the regulatory perspective as well I don't know um, but I think what it, it it's an interesting situation and I would be interested to see at what point does a institution like NatWest get banned when what would that have to do um, I guess as well we're also dealing with different Countries as well, obviously, NatWest being in the UK and N26 being in Italy. Maybe that's different as well because we know regulations are different between ecosystems. So it's all very interesting. But I think, I guess the main thing that you could take away from this is that institutions should take, you know, financial crime seriously. Whether you'll get banned like N26 has, I don't know. But like, obviously, fines aren't necessarily doing the job so I I wonder if any other sort of regulatory bodies or like central banks in different countries will look to this situation with N26 and go oh that's a good idea we need to start banning people so that they have to make things right rather than just like you say slapping them on the wrist and giving them the, the fines so it'll be interesting to watch I think. No
2: you're you're absolutely right and I think that it will uh it goes it goes to show a lot about the influence of of the uh, the national banks and uh, exactly what it takes to get banned by them. So we're probably going to get like a just uh, cease and desist letter after this podcast from the Bank of Italy. but um I think it's been a really, really interesting topic to discuss and talking of interesting topics, uh, I'd love to know what you' uh, you've got planned for today, Polly.
0: Thank you, Tyler. That was a seamless segue. So what I wanted to talk about uh, was the Gen Z shopping habits and how they are sort of shaping fintech success of the future. So basically, payments platform thunes I hope that's how you say it, uh, conducted a study into the shopping habits and payment preferences of Gen Z. So Gen Z is generally categorized as people being born in 1997 through to 2012. Ish, I feel like there's quite a lot of overlap when we think of these things, but those are Gen Zs. So one of the major findings from this study was how eight out of ten uh, Gen Zs use social media on multiple occasions throughout the day. Three quarters of those also check in multiple times a day, exposing themselves to new emerging markets. So basically, Gen Zs use social media a lot. We knew this, however the key thing here is that Gen Zs are using social media to buy things or to discover things that they want to purchase. So social media is where Gen Z are spending their money. And increasingly they're also making it too, with the huge range of like content monetization options offered by a lot of mainstream channels nowadays. And sort of in light of this, uh, they've sort of determined that a concentrated focus on social media marketing will become a deciding factor in successful business ventures of the future. So I thought this was an interesting thing to talk about, because this survey is kind of saying what we all knew already. You know, we all know social media is pretty big. We all know that, you know, influencers are huge and people can make money off social media and people spend a lot of time on social media. Therefore, it makes sense to be marketing to these people through social media. And, you know, we're seeing that with everything, you know, Instagram influencers, you know, with sponsored products and things like that tiktok as well tiktok is huge but i thought this is a quite an interesting one to look at from the sort of fintech lens because i feel like a lot of fintechs are sort of tapping into this idea of social media marketing and we're seeing a lot of fintechs doing it i think when i go on tiktok obviously because i am a fintech journalist and i do a lot of research into fintech so my algorithm is probably a bit ski compared to everyone else but when i go on tiktok a lot of my TikTok ads are for fintech companies and the same on Instagram. I get quite a lot of ads for fintech companies on Instagram and people capitalizing into this idea of social media marketing. Um, so I thought that was quite an interesting one to talk about. But also what I thought was quite interesting that did come out of the data was that the data suggests 62% of Gen Z's don't have a bank account which is quite wild to me because I feel like a lot of the time you expect that people will have a bank account. And I guess the thing to remember is obviously that Gen Z's include a lot of younger children. So if we're going up to 2012, those are like 10 and up. So yes, it makes sense why maybe a teenager wouldn't have a bank account or like a 10 year old wouldn't have a bank account, blah, blah, blah. But also it's, It's the move towards like mobile wallets and digital financial products where seeing the main focus of Gen Z. And that was just kind of super interesting to me because I think when we talk about, you know, financial inclusion and things like that, it's always about how do we get people bank accounts. And now it's getting to the point where, oh, you don't need a bank account. You just need a mobile wallet or you just need some sort of digital card. And that's super interesting. And I guess that's the whole point of FinTech. Like that's why FinTech was created. But anyway, I just, I'd love to get your guys' opinion on this and sort of, gen z and fintech and and all the rest so tyler what did you think
2: well i i uh definitely enjoyed writing this article i i thought some of the figures were very surprising for me to start with but i think it's i think it's important uh to consider that the the the, the data was put forward through the lens of like a time frame right so you 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 just mentioned that uh, Gen Z, like the the lower threshold of those people, are going to be born in 2012, and I think that the time frame of this sort of datum, what they were really trying to put across in it, was that in order for for fintechs and like banks to be successful past the year 2030, that they would have to recognise and understand the habits of of Gen Z today. I think when we look again at that lower threshold of people who are born in like 2012, in 2030, they're going to be 18 years old, right? So they're going to be again at the lower threshold of the sort of the, I won't say the main, the main sort of holders of wealth, but sort of one of the wealthiest, most affluent demographics. When, when you look beyond like, when you look beyond children or beyond millennials, for example, like in 2030, they're going to have one of the major shares. So, I can understand what it's also saying, and it also goes to uh, across to put a good point through that this might not be applicable to us because we were sort of born without revealing our age. We were sort of born at sort of the cusp of the internet, you know. But these are people who have never lived without the internet, who don't know, you know, what it's like to to put a, a landline into your computer and dial up the internet or set a timer for a video when you want to record it and put the videotape in so yeah i think that this data does a really good point of accentuating the fact that the future is actually already here and it just needs to be seen to be developed on by the year 2030 i mean polly what are your views on this
0: yeah, no. I just wanted to sort of—it's really interesting what you're saying about like the difference in generations. Because, like you say, I—I was born on the cusp of sort of being a Gen Z. I'm very just a millennial, but my sister, who is a couple of years younger than me, it's really interesting the difference you see between like my experience of things and her experience of things. Like you're saying, Tyler, like she never had to dial like up the internet. She never had to do this, that, or the other. Um, and so it—it it, again, it's going to be just interesting to see when her generation sort of grow up a bit more what that does to the fintech industry especially the, like the lower end the 10 year olds and stuff that we're talking about um and i also just for the record i loved nintendogs as a child so just throwing that out there um francis bringing you in the, on this one what did you think
1: i didn't realize you guys were millennials i feel like a, I feel like a child with you guys now so what i found really interesting about sort of what you guys have said and also about the article is I feel like we're looking at it from a very developed country standpoint. And what the article does mention is in developing regions that cash remains king offline, but the data puts forward that its influence is in steady decline. And this is something that's been exacerbated by the wider choice and accessibility of digital tools. And whilst it does talk about Asia and Africa in the article, I think it's interesting to talk about Latin America as well, because I spoke to Norvia Serrano the CMO at BlockBank a few months ago now when El Salvador announced that Bitcoin was going to become a legal tender. And she told me that blockchain education programs were huge and becoming more accessible in the country and that these were helping youth the youth essentially not join gangs because they now had sort of prospects in understanding technology. And yes, blockchain is the next step after online payments. But it's definitely something that sort of Zoomers and Generation Alpha are going to be adopting in the future. And it is something that companies should start looking to, as it is going to be a huge thing. And as we said, by 2030, blockchain is going to have developed a huge amount. And for what we know, crypto payments are going to be the next big thing. So I think it's very interesting that even in developed countries, or developing countries I should say, that there is this 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 development in fintech and that despite having offline sort of cash transactions being king now I think by 2030 they're probably going to be in line with us the more developed countries
0: yeah that's super interesting and again it's one of the, I feel like we say this a lot but it's one of those things that it's let's keep an eye on it and see what happens it's it's going to be really interesting to see where things go um and what like the new big thing is when it comes to this sort of stuff so no, thank you guys for the riveting discussion. If you want to hear more about any of the uh, things we've talked about today, then please head on over to our website, uh, to read more news and other wonderful things that we spend our time creating. So you should do that. Anyway, moving swiftly along, uh, it is now time for What I Learned This Week. Uh, each week, being on the Fintech Times editorial team, we get so much news, insights and everything else crossing our desks about fintech, that we are constantly learning new things about the industry all the time. So we thought it would be super fun to share it with you guys. Uh, So Tyler, what did you learn this week?
2: Well, this week uh, I I found out that, although it may not be wholly new news, uh, a new report by Dojo has pointed to uh, customer experience as being like the most important factor in high street shopping. And that actually how e-commerce wasn't enough and that most of the consumers missed like being out, being actually in shops and that they, that they liked sort of a really good face-to-face interaction, uh, especially on the UK high street. It's a very UK centric uh, set of figures. Um, but it goes, I think it goes to show that the there's not been a, a really holistic digital takeover the, the high street and physical shopping is actually i believe making a comeback and it's something that they touched upon today in starling when they said that you can't learn digital literacy through digital means alone you have to have solid cash and and phys- tangible like coins and cash to learn the true value of money so yeah i think it's it's a really interesting uh quite two quite polarizing things i've just said but It goes to show that it's not all about digital all the time.
0: That's a really interesting point, actually. And I would agree with you because it is quite difficult to understand something without having it tangibly. You know, like you can see coins disappearing so you can't spend them anymore. That's such an interesting point. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you for sharing that with us today. You're Uh, welcome. (laughs) Francis, what did you learn this week?
1: So what I learned this week goes in the complete opposite direction and is talking about exclusively digital stuff. And that is... It. If my grandmother had Will, she would have been a bike himself. Gino DeCampo has launched uh, a play-to-earn NFT metaverse game called Big Town Chef. And I thought this was really, really interesting for a couple of reasons. One, celebrities are getting involved in the metaverse. I mean, we knew this already, but even names sort of that you probably wouldn't expect like a chef. I think that, that was interesting first and foremost. And secondly, I found this interesting because it comes at a time that Axie Infinity, the most well-known play to earn nft metaverse sphere i guess the world had a huge hack uh, in which it took a week i think for people to realize that funds had gone missing and i found it very interesting that this uh, this press release came into my inbox at a time that you know the security of nft play to earns has been brought into question
0: that is very interesting. And I would like to propose that we scrap fintech and we make this podcast about Julia DeCampo because I absolutely adore him.
1: All in favour. He All in favor. is
0: amazing and I support everything that he does. So NFT is wonderful. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, what I learned this week. Uh, what did I learn this week? Oh, yeah, I went to Innovate Finance Global Summit on Monday and Tuesday, which was a very interesting event. Um, and what I learned is that basically everyone was saying how big embedded finance is going to be. And that's like the next big thing or the big thing currently. It's all embedded finance. It's all bass, It's all that kind of stuff. But I had a really interesting conversation with a man from Quant. I think that's how you say the company. Um, and we were just talking about like trends in fintech. And basically he was saying that even though it's all about embedded finance at the moment, when you think about the actual consumer and what a consumer cares about, There is yet to be a current big trend in fintech. We don't have one yet. We've had a few before, but the new trend has yet to appear because everything is all about sort of the back end like with with embedded finance. But the average consumer doesn't really care about embedded finance. They care about stuff that they can actually engage in. So I just thought that was a super interesting um, viewpoint. And if if you also find that interesting, Lister, then watch this space because I'm going to be writing an article about it. Um, But yeah, so that's what I learned this week. So anyway, that's it. Another podcast over and done with. Thank you both for joining me today. We, as always, have discussed some super interesting things. It has been a pleasure.
2: Thank you so much, guys. And I'll see you next week. Thank you very much. And remember, if your grandmother had wills, she would have been a bike.
1: <laughs> 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 see you next week, guys.
0: Thanks for listening to the News and Views podcast by the FinTech Times. Don't miss next week's episode and continue the conversations using hashtag TFT News and Views and follow us at the FinTech Times.